Hello and welcome to another episode of Roy's Cast. Uh, we are your hosts, Johnny Farley and Sam Wright. Today we are joined by Dr. Michael Reeve, a lecturer in modern British history at the Open University. Some of you may remember his name from our conference last year and hopefully be seeing him again at our conference this year. So, Michael, how are you? Tell us, start to tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm very well and thanks for, thanks for having me on Roy's Cast. Um, I've listened with, with real interest since you've got it started, so it's really nice to be involved. And yeah, like you said, um, I've been in your orbit since your first conference last year uh, that was uh, here at Blades House, where we're recording in, in the great city of Hull. Um, and yeah, so I'm a historian of modern Britain, as my job title suggests. Uh, and when I spoke at your conference last year, I was talking about voluntary policing during the First World War, and I used Hull as a case study. Um, and that was based on some research from my PhD thesis, which I did at the University of Hull. And I was based uh, in the Blades Maritime Centre, and I finished that in 2019. Um, so yeah, that was quite, quite fresh in my mind, because um, yeah, in 2022, that was last year. It was, yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was still kind of very much had mm. that part of my work in mind, and um, was trying to develop it further, so that, that conference paper really helped with developing that oh, right. that kind of thread of my research. Well, so you did your um, your PhD here at Blades. What was that on, as a, aside from the touching on the policing and, and things like that? Yeah, so the policing stuff was part of a, this, this bigger project that I did uh, during my PhD, which was about the bombardment of civilians in coastal towns and cities during the First World War. So I um, started out with like a kind of fairly big idea about you know, how do ordinary people deal with, you know, war? And if you say modern wars, particularly the First World War, these are total, you know, they involve everybody. Then they certain, certainly involve civilians. But then I thought, you know, well, perhaps people that live in coastal towns have a slightly different perspective on, say, being bombarded um, because, you know, if you live by the coast and a ship can come mm. close to you and bombard your town. And that's what happened in 1914 to Scarborough and Whitby and Hartlepool, a bit further north. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it was this interesting kind of endurance, resilience, mainly of civilians in that work. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in kind of everyone, including combatants and how they deal with that really stressful and mm. obviously very disorientating situation of being in in a war in a war and so yeah the way I got at it was through yeah started with that big idea about resilience and endurance and then thought well a good way to get at this will be to have case studies of actual places and then I was keen to capture some diversity as well so different kinds of coastal places not just random coastal towns that happen to have been bombed mm. but ones that had would also have some contrasting would bring forth some con contrasting perspectives as well. So looked at Hull because it's a, a really big uh, industrial port with connections all over the world. Uh, that's very different to Scarborough, which at that mm. time is very much this kind of um, playground of a nouveau riche, where it was in the 19th century. And then mm. by the First World War is also frequented by a lot of uh, workers mm. from across the industrial north. Um, and then Hartlepool, because it's a smaller industrial coal port. Um, 
it was gen in kind of like develops around the railways in the in the late nineteenth century, and it's kind of booming uh, because of coal and industrial production um, in the early twentieth century. And then Whitby figures there because it was also hit in the same bombardment at Scarborough and Hartlepool, but wasn't as badly affected. Hmm. Uh, but it was really interesting because its kind of uh, built heritage was seen as being really badly affected because the because Whitby Abbey was hit by a shell. And so it loomed large in some of the anti-German propaganda that followed the bombardment because it was this beautiful historic town where poets and writers and painters had, had, had visited and it was this quaint yeah. seaside town. So yeah, I wanted to get these contrasting perspectives in there as well, as well as kind of problematizing it's a word that I, that I use a lot, <laughs> but problematizing the, an idea of of a national hmm. shared experience during the First World War, which to some extent there are shared aspects like the involvement of civilians, hmm. um, the loss of life on a colossal scale affecting people all over the country. Uh, but I wanted to really capture what it you know what it might have been like to be a coastal person hmm. as opposed to an inland person. Yeah, that's really interesting because when I when I normally think about sort of civilians during the First World War, it's a lot of the hardships are to do with things like rationing and and losing loved ones, obviously terrible things, but the the sort of almost proto-blitz aspect of these coastal cities is, is it, it's not something I've ever really heard about, to be fair, in, in what, I've, what I've looked at. Obviously, I'm not mm. a, that period historian, but um, it, it's interesting that it isn't, from growing up in the area and going to those places, it's interesting. It's not more talked about as as sort of this this, this as you say a shared experience between these coastal places that already have quite a lot in common with each other. There's a lot of like coastal towns tend to have a, a, a sense of camaraderie or or, or um, relationship with one another. So I think yeah, just it's it's interesting that there's this aspect that's maybe a bit less well known that um, further ties them together. Um, yeah and that really informed the work as well because I would talk to people and tell them that I was doing a project about that and they would go oh I didn't I didn't even know that people got bombed in the first world war people just know about the blitz of the second world war and it's led some historians to call the bombardment um, of of Britain by Zeppelin airships which is a really famous um, the really famous attacks, but earlier in the war there were there were naval bombardments, which is the one that affected the northeast coast. Mm. Um, it's led some historians to call that like the first blitz, yeah. to co-opt that language to at least try and show that there's some affinity mm. there. The loss of, the loss of life is not on the same scale, mm. but it was really really truly shocking for people at that time, even with years and years of hysteria about the possibility of invasion. Yeah. Um, when it happened, it was still very shocking for people in 1914. No, oh, definitely. I guess, especially with the last time that there would have been any potential of a of a naval bombardment like that, would be what Napoleon. That kind of the the last yeah. time we've ever yeah. been posed a threat from sea. So, when that figured in the propaganda in pamphlets, yeah, yeah. they would say like this: when Scarborough was bombarded, this it, it had been all that time. It had mm. been a couple of hundred years or so yeah. since anyone had attempted wow. attempted it. Um. And the Germans were at the gates, as it were, and they were yeah. on Scarborough Beach, or at least that was what people yeah. people did initially think that. Oh wow, yeah, um, that's really interesting. Um, quickly though, um, you weren't always a a pure historian, though, were you? you? You were telling us earlier that you hadn't done it 
until sort of uh, university. So if you could, I don't know, tell us tell us how you went from that to doing this sort of really in depth, quite detailed work on a on a really local personal aspect of history. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a weird one because yeah, I've told people before, and I tell my students now because it's quite it's quite good to tell them where you come from and how you how you approach things and your own story um yeah i didn't do history at school i did the obligatory history that mm-hmm. everyone does up until gcse and then i chose geography and i think for some reason school didn't kindle some great passion in history for me mm. i think maybe that's that's fairly common yeah i think the people that get really inspired to do particular subjects at school it's usually because they've got a very inspiring teacher I did have some great teachers at school, but not in that particular area and Mm. obviously didn't kindle a great fire inside me. But um, what I did was when I eventually went to university um, and I went to a a bricks and mortar university, as I call, as I call them as an open university Mm. person now, where we have a university that floats in the ether. (laughs) Um, At least that's how we like to imagine it. Um, When I went to a bricks and mortar university, I went to... Leeds Metropolitan University, which is now called Leeds Beckett. And um, I did an English and history degree. And it wasn't a joint honours, it was a kind of interdisciplinary degree where you had modules that were kind of weaved into each other. So it's really, it really, really good course and it's still it's still around. Um, and I did that because I was, I really liked reading. I, read a, I still read like, you know, classic novels mm. and all that stuff and all, all sorts. And thought, well, if I'm gonna do uni full time, because what I'd done before was I'd done, I'd been an open university student and I was doing social sciences um, because I'd liked and enjoyed sociology when I was mm. doing my A-levels. So that was my first foray into higher education. Um, but I, tra- I decided to change tack, partly for practical reasons after doing the open university for quite a few years because I wanted to uh, commit to university full time. And it wasn't a great economic situation back in 2009, 2010, because mm. there'd just been a massive economic crisis. Yeah. So it was motivated by, I thought, you know, a passion for, uh, for English, an interest in history. Um, but it was still motivated by that social science that I'd been learning at the Open University. Um, and like the kind of a way of learning and approaching learning that I'd learned at the OU, which uh, which was really beneficial. But yeah, so I ended up doing this English and history degree and enjoyed both aspects, but really liked doing the historical research when I actually started looking at sources, mm. learning about different periods, but then starting to really get interested in the late Victorian and Edwardian periods and that I've pretty much stayed on that track ever since. Mm. And I think I ended up doing the First World War stuff because I was already interested in that, you know, on, the, on the kind of social and cultural sides of it, which is what I've ended up continuing to do. But it the, the final year of my degree was the first year of the um, First World War centenary. Mm. So um, there being a build-up throughout my degree with people talking about it being on the horizon, and then suddenly everyone's talking about the First World War. And that really helped me start to kind of mould an undergraduate dissertation project um, about the First World War. Mm. And then I kind of stayed on, like I say, on that track ever since, mm. with some digressions. Yeah. Because obviously, I mean, well, literature plays an awful 
uh, an awfully big role in the First World War as well. There's a lot mm. of um, these sort of the poets and things like that coming through. So did that ever a play a part in it, or did you, did you ever read any of the? Was it, I've forgotten all their names. Um, You've got uh, Siegfried Sassoon. Siegfried and, Sassoon, yeah, um, yeah, they're, those ones. I'm trying to remember my A levels. <laughs> um, well, Sassoon, well, it's good you mentioned Sassoon because he was. Uh, I read probably more of his stuff and Ford and Ford Mannix Ford stuff um, when I was writing the undergraduate work and used because I think because my degree was very heavily informed by English studies and English literature study of English literature I kind of came to the study of history with this very open-minded and interdisciplinary kind mm. of approach where I I used novels as a kind of historical source mm. um, and yeah, used novels as this way of like this is like the zeitgeist mm. in like the after the war, and this is how people, at least some writers, were trying to capture that experience of being involved in the First World War. People like Sassoon, um, and what I was looking for in that work, I mean, it was about smoking in the First World War and smoking among soldiers in the trenches. So this is before I really started getting into my local case studies and looking mm. at the North and looking at Yorkshire. Um, that doesn't mean that it wasn't informed by Yorkshire in some ways, because a lot of the primary sources I used in the work were from archives in Leeds mm. and were about people from the North. Um, and I always, I still find my, my eye will fall on a page if I'm looking through some kind of dusty old magazine. I'm looking at, at, at the moment at a lot of... Um, tobacco trade journals which is surprisingly entertaining actually it's not all just price lists there's a lot of like gossip and things like that but yeah I, mean, I will fall on Leeds or Whitby or Scarborough in these magazines mm. and it's like it shows that there's any flashpoint any event you look at um, in, a, in a big conflict like the First World War um, is there might be a slightly different angle on it if you look at a particular place mm. and that seems like perfectly understandable common sense but often when we write histories, it tends to be as broad as possible and say as much as possible mm. about as much stuff as possible. But sometimes that micro-historical approach can be really enlightening. Oh, definitely. I mean, it, it's it's part of what brought us together for Roy's itself is all of our... So we all look at quite broad topics within our research, but the specifics of it is, is well, almost almost all of us entirely to do with Yorkshire myself looking at Roman Yorkshire Sam looking at sort of Lloyd's Register and, and Yorkshire um, things like that it's, it, so yeah it is finding that that micro story in amongst it all can really help ground it and especially with as you say you work with sort of social social side of things um, like we found with our outreach that having those having those little stories can just make it make tons more sense to people than these you know you, for me if you bring in latin names people start to glaze over a bit and you start talking about like how many emperors they've been in five years they they, they really lose it whereas if you can talk about a person um and especially a person that has stepped foot in that same area or has something to do with that same area it can really really sort of um zone it in for them focus it in for them so that's really it's really interesting. Um, you were mentioning about your your work on the on the coasts and their bombardments, and you you um, briefly talked about Hull and and how Hull was affected as as an industrial site. Um, would you talk a bit more about that and and some of the developments that went on in Hull at that that sort of time? 
Yeah, so Hull was um, quite badly affected by the Zeppelin raids. Um, and what was interesting to see was that it rankled with local people that it didn't figure um, very much in the kind of national propaganda efforts to kind of make sense of what had happened, to drum up kind of um, anti-Germanism and kind of strong sentiments against the enemy. Scarborough took a lot of the limelight. Uh, had already taken a lot of the limelight in 1914 and it kind of, st- that was still held up as the exemplar of like, this is this is um, the barbarity of the enemy because they will attack this undefended, quaint, Victorian, formerly very bourgeois um, seaside town. Um, and then the industrial places like Hull and Hartlepool are not as glamorous and people either don't know about them or they're not that bothered about them. And so it doesn't figure in, in the kind of propaganda efforts. Um, so that was a big takeaway from that. But um, when you drill down into what it was like to, or to try to reconstruct to some extent what it might have been like to live in Hull um, during the war when there was those bombardments, it, was, it just got more and more interesting looking at the communication between the local military forces that were stationed in the city, um, their communications with the kind of top brass in Whitehall and with government ministers and figures asking constantly for more defences, for better guns, for mobile guns. Um, things that you think about with the First World War, like asking for searchlights, mm. these things are synonymous with the Second World War, I should say, sorry. Uh, and then looking at how there's this constant process of negotiation, of argument, central government figures just ignoring letters from from regional military authorities for like a lot longer than you would have imagined, mm. you know, for weeks and weeks at a time. Um, because obviously they're busy, but it's also like it makes you think about well, what, where, where were the priorities? Um, but it's also very, it was also very messy when I got into the into the government papers down in the National Archives. Um, Hull was placed as a high priority place because the Humber region was home to all of these industrial, really industrially important sites. Immingham, uh, massive oil depot there. So obviously if that was captured or blown up, devastating. So, I mean, the whole region was really important, but in terms of the the kind of what, to use a kind of academic kind of phrase, the kind of public imaginary, Mm. it didn't figure quite so much. So that that rankled, I think, during the war, if you think, if you you read letters to the editor of the whole Daily Mail, say, I mean, that in itself is not, you know, you could spend the rest of your life just reading those letters. It's absolutely fascinating. And after the war, it continues to, uh, to to rankle with people, but I think it's it's interesting actually that you bring up during the First World War the fact that Hull is not given that mm. recognition of how badly things have, have become in, in the port because obviously during the Second World War it happens again, mm. often to an extent that still to this day causes resentment in the city because I mean Hull is for those people that, that are not aware during the Second World War when Hull is I think outside of London the worst worst place hit. During the Blitz, during during that conflict, Hull is referred to simply as a northeast coast town, and it's never mentioned by name. So, even today, when you talk to people that have experienced that, they still live in sort of resentment of, of sort of sort of central government. And so, it's interesting that that's got. It's not something that I particularly thought about that it had historical precedent as well. 
Mm. Um, another thing that comes up from from that links to Hull, and it's it's how we've we've connected outside of Roy's as well, is looking at the role that actually the development of Hull's port infrastructure is used in a way that you know signifies you know the, the emergence of a particular conflict in in you know on the brink of the First World War. And I know that Hull Docks featured prominently in in that bit of your work. So I don't know if you could talk a little bit about mm. sort of how important the docks are to Hull and to Hull's self-image mm. as we as it approached the First World War. Yeah, that's that's a really good term to use, self-image. And I think yeah, Hull in in nineteen in the summer of nineteen fourteen that you know that that glorious summer of nineteen fourteen that's always mentioned. Um, it really was trying to cultivate a very particular self-image, and I think if you put things like dock openings into so like opening ceremonies of docks into you throw them into relief you can learn all sorts of different things which is what i tried to do so um i did my thesis about my phd thesis about you know the bombardments um and it got me thinking like you say about the kind of development of the docks and and I noticed, I think, when I was just re- looking for something else in the newspapers, because newspapers were, are always a really big primary source in my work, um, was the King George Dock, so what was the joint dock, because it was the joint enterprise of two railway companies. But I've always known it as King George Dock, and it, it did become named King George Dock because King George opened it uh, just before the First World War breaks out in 1914. Um, and... This at the time is a state-of-the-art dock. It's got electric cranes. There's lots of concrete everywhere. It's absolutely enormous. Uh, And I became kind of more and more motivated to focus in on that even more. So to take that micro approach and zoom in even further to to the particular event of the opening of King George Dock. Um, And the other thing that was motivating me is that I'd like grown up in the shadow of it, as it were, because I'm from Marfleet. Um, so I grew up in the shadow of Craven Park, hearing the speedway and the rugby at one side and the ship's hooters at the other side when there were more ships in there. <laughs> I mean, bear in mind, you know, I'm in my thirties. Um, so there weren't loads of ships even when I was a kid, but there's obviously less now. So anyway, it was motivated by a little bit of a personal affinity and lots of, in, in some ways, nostalgia for like kind of knocking about on the docks and playing playing around there and going for walks there when I was a kid. Um, and then this little serendipitous, serendipitous connection that I'd made through looking for something else in the newspapers. And so, yeah, that was a bit of a convoluted way to get to my point, which is what I noticed was when I looked at the event, which was this really great grand royal opening of the dock, where the king and the queen consort um, came in a car from Paragon Station uh, down Head and Road up to the dock. There were thousands and thousands of people lining the way. People on Head and Road set up makeshift um, makeshift grandstands using kitchen tables in their gardens and charge people a shilling a go to stand and watch. Um, so it's an event that really captures the imagination. Um, there were seafarers from across the world sitting alongside the dock watching it all happen. Of course, the main event itself is ticketed and usually, and it's a lot of grandees from the, from the railway companies and local politicians and military figures and the like. And they are the ones actually who get to be close to the monarch. 
but it's this great grand spectacle. And what happens um, on the run up to it and during it is these kinds of what what we what we call kind of boosterism. So boosting the city and creating, cultivating a particular image of the city. What's going on is, well, what I've kind of argued is that we're already really into the death throes of the British Empire by 1914, which is at least partly to do with why there is a kind of continental conflagration because of these rival imperialisms vying for parts of the world. And so what I'm able to do with looking at the dock is like get a really tiny slice of how all of this stuff is, a really tiny perspective of how this is actually playing out on the ground. So the boosterist propaganda, you might call it, or kind of, um, you know, the, the, or content as we'd call it now, coming out in the newspapers and in pamphlets and, and what have you is about Hull being this world famous, globally important imperial port. So not only is it really important within Britain for getting coal to where it needs to be, for connecting the inland canals with the, the coastline, connecting the country with Scandinavia and Germany and what have you, and being very cheap. That's something they always like to underline and well into the interwar period and beyond and into the 50s when the docks are really starting to really massively decline because of the, 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 the trawl fisheries kind of starting to disappear is, um, yeah, hull's cheap, so move your trade here. And, you know, there are, on the run-up to 1914, and this is helped by the by King George Dock being built, is it does allow for more larger ships to be, to come into port, and it is used as a big selling point, and there are new connections made with, like, New Zealand and Australia to get apples over here and these kind of things. These are things that I managed to find in the newspapers. So what they're underlining is that, yeah, Hull is not just a really important port because it's got this function. It's also culturally important as this conduit for all sorts of different places within the empire. And what the king coming here does is stamp that with an, a seal of approval and say Hull is so important it can no longer be ignored. And indeed, with the formation of this... Um, state-of-the-art dock it's like saying Hulk things can only get better to kind of like quote that song that Tony Blair used in 1997 but it is almost it does feel like this moment it's very exuberant you get swept along with the positivity that is in the news in the newspapers and particularly the, commem the commemorative stuff around the opening of the dock is full chock full of adverts as well for like everything you can think of and every every advertiser is trying to dial into the royal connection and we're probably going to see this this year with the coronation of king charles more and more people trying to flog their wares by talking about uh, the monarchy in some kind of roundabout way so you've got in 1914 you've got businesses like um the the whole brewery or whole breweries there's, there's a few that do it saying our beer is the king of beers your typical modern advertising tricks but yeah, so what's going on? Yeah, Hull as an imperial port, stamp of approval of the monarch. Um, and then what happens very, very closely upon the opening of the dock is Britain joins a, a massive European conflict. So you've got all of this exuberance and all of this positivity, and then um, there's a war. 
Um, and the other interesting thing about the boosterism is that, of course, during the summer of 1914, everyone's talking about the possibility of there being a war. A lot of people don't believe that there will be one, but people are talking about it. But there's hardly a sniff of that when you look at the build-up, the literature that builds up to the opening of King George Dock. So it's, yeah, I found it particularly interesting, I think, because, um, again, it doesn't assume that every, this approach means that you don't, you go into it not assuming that everyone has the same experience of um, being a city in the British Empire. It gives you that kind of localised perspective that says, well, actually, we acknowledge that the empire is start is needing to shore itself up and say people are having to actively go out of the way to say the British Empire is great because before you could assume it in the mid to late nineteenth century, and then by the early twentieth century you've got to kind of remind people that it's there and that they've got to work hard to keep it going. Um, so you've got to kind of remobilize people around an idea of empire and things like the event that opens the King George Dock actually do a lot of work to try and advance an idea of empire. That's maybe what I should have said initially, but I got there in the end. <laughs> yeah, and I think from from my background, you know, listening and then talking to you about that in the in the conversations that we've had, it's particularly interesting from my perspective as somebody that's sort of studied dock development and in in Hull and, and the maritime activity of the port, is that a lot of that you know, self-promotion that we're talking about in 1914 is to some extent not true and to some extent actually trying to change a maritime perception of what the Port of Hull is because, I mean, there's a lot of labels of it being the third port. So I think by the turn of the century, Hull is is losing its status that it's had for a long time as a third port, but places, you know, on Humber are taking massive trade away from it like Immingham and Goole. But you've also got places like Southampton that are developing with liner traffic that's ever, that's ever increasing so i think there's a bit of a little bit of fear within the port itself about we want to promote ourselves as the third port basically while we still can Mm. but i think also i think the two points about it being cheap and modern are interesting because for for 100 years before that the criticism leveled at the port of hull was almost the exact opposite hull was the most expensive port on the humber to use largely because the port authority at the time the Hull Dock Company, who have, my, my topic of research, but I've had many mention on this podcast, but the Hull Dock Company charges exuberant dock dues to get into this port, so it becomes the most expensive port on the Humber to use, um, which is why you get developments in places like Grimsby, Gull and, and Immingham, because people want a cheap alternative. But also a lot of the docks in Hull, before the big town docks that emerge outside of sort of the traditional old town, a lot of the old town docks are old. They, they, they were obsolete almost when they open. So I think there's a lot of the Hull Dock Company of recent, of, of, you know, in 1914, the Hull Dock Company have not but not been long dead. So I think there's a bit of, I don't know if, it, if you've come across it as well, but I don't know if there's a bit of celebration of that they can say these things now because for a hundred, for a, you know, the hundred years previous, these were the criticisms that the pot were having to deal with. So I think it maybe it's, it's a chance to reinvent mm-hmm. as well as self-promote maybe. I don't know if you've, Sort of come across. I'm sure I know you've come across the whole dot company before because we've talked we've talked about it. But I suppose I don't know if that maybe plays into it as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, like that. that yeah, that feeling that the the city and the port are now free to do to do all this state of the art stuff. It's just that they were being held back by the whole dot company. Because I remember 
reading something, and I think I put this in the article that I wrote um, that's in Northern History. Um, because Hull Dock Company had had this monopoly for so long, um, they'd let the ports kind of like, as you allude to, kind of um, get past their prime. They'd not been that proper investment. And particularly there's this, there's, there's calls, I think, from going quite far back into the 19th century for a dock to the east of the city, which is, of course, where they, where they build King George Dock. So I think, yeah, you're right when you say, yeah, by 1914, it's, they, they, can, they can say as the kind of victors, kind of commercially and otherwise and politically, um, the, the combination of the local authority working with these two, with the Hull and Barnsley and the Northeastern Railway companies to develop this great dock that is, that's, yeah, why it's doubly celebratory. Um, so it's not, all, yeah, it's not only about the big stuff about empire and about um, needing to reinforce an idea of empire at a time when it was perhaps starting to slip away um, and, uh, you know, very quickly, um, but also um, about trying to underline that the city's fortunes were in the hands of more capable capable men. Certainly more willing men, yeah. I'm sure. Was the, was yeah, the term that they willing, wanted to use. that's probably better, yeah. No, I think yeah. it's... Uh, it, it's it's really, it's probably it, I mean it isn't it isn't any um, coincidence that some of the only docks that are still commercially active at the Port of Fuller are not Hull Dock Company docks mm, mm. because they're the ones that were forward thinking. Mm. And you said like some of the new technology that were being brought in and placed on site would have been simply not would have been unheard of mm. in the in the period previous. So I think it's Hull's one of those useful places where you can see all these different things playing into something like a major event like that opening in, in 1914. So I think that's, it's certainly what, 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 we, what we've connected in previously about mm. talking about, you know, me nerding out about Hull Docks and finding somebody <laughs> else that was doing it as well. Mm. So I suppose that, that brings us on a little bit to another, the, the main connection that we've had with you through Roy's, which was which was last year, mm. which talked a little bit about policing, particularly in Yorkshire. So I don't know if you could just touch on a little bit about that for anyone that didn't, didn't mm. wasn't able to get to Roy's last year. Yeah, so policing history... I kind of fell into accidentally almost because I I couldn't ignore it when I got into the into the sources, the newspapers and the other kind of primary sources that I looked at when I was doing the thesis. And obviously when I'm looking at civilians and the way that people deal with war, they start the, the ways they try to endure it and become more resilient. Um, and you look at defence, so I talked before about all these arguments about getting better guns and searchlights, um, spotlights and these kind of things. Is that of course, there are, you know, there's the, the civilian police as well. And my, but the first sniff I got of it in the primary sources was discussions about whether the police should be armed because there was that, early in the war, there was that fear that there would be an invasion, particularly because of the December 1914 bombardment of the of the northeast coast. Um, you know, if the, if the if the Germans could bombard Scarborough, then they could easily, you know, land on the beach and uh, overrun the town and then come inland. So you've got this very fraught period where people are very worried. There's a lot of anxiety and stress. Um, and you've got potential, or at least there's, there's a fear among contemporaries that that stress and anxiety can spill over into disorder and so policing becomes the order of the day 
Um, and like I was saying, there's discussions about whether the police should be given guns to help the army repel an invading force. Uh, and that rumbles on for much of the war. But it is kind of settled. Um, although people continue to talk about it, it's the government settles it just by basically saying, no, they shouldn't be armed because they're a volunteer. There are, there are not, well, there are police volunteers, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but yeah, the police is fundamentally a a force of civilians. Mm. It, yeah, it's about keeping order, but it's it shouldn't be armed. That's what we've got the armed forces for. Yeah, so I got into it through questions of defence, and then I started to think more and more about the kind of the actual personnel that are involved in defence beyond kind of the physical infrastructure you know, the, the sandbags and the barricades and the barbed wire and the guns. Um, so you've got um, the special constabulary are kind of reformed in 1914. And historically, going back quite, you know, a long way into kind of like the eight, 17th and 18th centuries, I think maybe even a bit earlier than that, if you look to kind of forerunners, special constabulary were raised at times of kind of uh, political unrest and this would often be your kind of uh, local grandees or proper dyed in the wool middle class men would become a police officer for a period of time to quell any disturbances in their town or city so 1914 you've got a new special constabulary act special constables act which allows local authorities to raise special constabulary again for the purpose of um, basically policing civilians in this period of war. And you've got emergency legislation nationally in the First World War. The Defence of the Realm Act comes in just within days of, of Britain joining the war. Um, and that allows the central government to um, a, lo a lot of leeway in the kind of laws that can be developed to keep things together during the war. Um, and so um, local authorities end up having quite a lot of power to almost make, to kind of improvise their own policies. So there's a national framework, but um, central government doesn't necessarily interfere that much in local authorities. Local authorities themselves are empowered to do a lot of things themselves. Um, so you've got this kind of, uh, this, this chain a kind of network that sometimes goes both ways, but sometimes it's just central government kind of allowing local authorities to have powers. And at this time, the police come within with, under the rubric of local authorities. Um, and yeah, they become important for um, waking people up when there's been an air raid siren. Um, Scarborough experiments with some new... Uh, emergency um, early warning systems after the bombardment in December 1914 so early 1915 uh, Hull brass founders so there's a nice connection there between Hull and Scarborough as well the Hull brass founders um, makes a steam powered hooter and they test it out in various parts of Scarborough to see where the most, most people can hear it um, and they have to experiment quite a lot with it because the lay of the land in Scarborough means that if you put it up high, people in the lower part of the town don't hear it and vice versa. So they end up having to make a few 
so as many people can hear it as possible. But it still means you need a force of people that can knock on people's doors and say, the buzzer's going. Mm. You need to um, go into your basement or you need to uh, hide under a table or you need to do something so you're not um, exposed. So the special constabulary really, you know, for something that's imagined in emergency legislation as being all about order, ends up being about public safety in a big way. Um, so they're, they're warning people about alarms, they're helping put out fires, they're stretching people away um, from bomb sites when they've been injured. They become like a kind of uh, this public safety force um, that lends its hand to all sorts of different um, wartime duties. And then what I found was that it kind of dovetailed with ideas of kind of masculinity and um, how to be useful in wartime for those men that couldn't be soldiers, either were too young or too old, or they were whatever you want to say. And they couldn't, you know, be a, be a hero. But maybe at home they could be a hero by becoming a special, a special mm-hmm. constable. Um, so, yeah, in Hull, yeah, there's like 3,000 local men become special constables at various points in the, in the war. They're allowed to um, kind of parade through the city um, after the armistice. So a very important constituency of local men kind of devoted to public safety. Yeah. I remember being really, um, a really compelling talk last year at the, at the conference. Um, that was really good. And like Sam said, that kind of brings us, us full circle on your relationship with Roy's. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about sort of what you're up to now with um, your job at the Open University and some of your, your newer research. Um, I think you mentioned before it's about tobacco and the, the role smoking plays as a, a sort of um, psychological aspect of it mm. um, amongst both the troops and at home. So if you just talk, talk about that for a few minutes. Um. Yeah, yeah. So I'm back to, I'm back on the kind of tobacco and smoking train again. So that's like, my first everything that I published in 2016 was about tobacco and soldiers on the Western Front and like the meanings it had for soldiers, um, how it was supplied to soldiers um, and how it figured in kind of cultural works like novels, like where it's mentioned, what a writer's saying about it, why did they find it so important? So I'd, what I'd found when, you know, during that centenary period that I mentioned before, is that like every image, almost every image you saw of soldiers or sailors or, or civilians, there was a cigarette in, in the frame somewhere. And I thought, I want to read more about that. And there's some interesting historiography on it, historiography on it and some interesting work produced on it. But I thought there was more to do and particularly really, really focusing on kind of these wartime sites like the trenches. So I kind of did this study of you know, what it, must, what it was like in the trenches and why soldiers smoked and tried to understand it from soldiers' perspective by looking at letters and, and, and other kinds of correspondence, by looking at newspapers and looking at all sorts of different things. Um, but I parked that for a bit, um, it seems. And thinking back, I kind of think, can't quite remember why, but I just mm. got interested in something else, I suppose. And I uh, got interested in the civilian bombardment stuff, but it was still like it doesn't sound like it at first at first hearing, but it's kind of in the same ballpark because it's still about what people did to endure war, how they made sense of war, how they tried to gain some kind of resilience. The tobacco and smoking stuff is all about well, what does the cigarette do 
in terms of like the nicotine and the kind of physiological effects of smoking are understood in this period. Um, Addiction is not really understood. There are not all those connections with lung cancer that we get in the 1950s. And generally, smoking is seen as being a broadly positive thing, mm. and particularly when it becomes to periods of stress and strain like war. And in fact, it had been understood as a kind of panacea, going right back to the early history of, of um, Europeans' interaction with non-Europeans who smoked. Um, it was always seen as this medicinal panacea. Mm. And this really sharpens up in the First World War. So yeah, I did that first... Um, article strayed a little bit into looking at bombardment but it was still like i said broadly in the same ballpark and then i've got to where i am now where i'm able to spend a bit more time on some research after spending a couple of years doing a lot of kind of very teaching focused work um to look again at smoking and this time i want to look even deeper at the first world war but also look at other conflicts because i think we're kind of can't look at the First World War in, in in isolation with this because there must be historical precedents and indeed mm. there were and I'm finding that the more I do research into the Crimean War and the Boer War mm. which are case studies that I'm looking at now and of course there are developments into the interwar years and into the Second World War and indeed beyond that into the Cold War um, so these are all well for me conflicts that I've not done research, very much research on myself before so it's really exciting to be embarking on the project but obviously it's gonna it's gonna take me a while mm. but i want to really fo- see where these connections are between these conflicts um and how medical and public health and military and kind of popular common sense ideas of the role of smoking in war and um what tobacco does to people's bodies and minds and how that changes over time um, and you could write a book about that in a general way, but I think war is so important in reframing the way people think about things like, about various kinds of consumption, smoke, particularly when we look at intoxicants, smoking and drinking, and you know even the more hard drugs like amphetamines and things, as historians doing really interesting work about all sorts of, all sorts of intoxicants uh, and the way that war seems to bring forth more and more reasons for people to mm. engage in these things because it helps them deal with what they're going through. So, yeah, really excited to be back on on that stuff again. Yeah. Yeah, again, it's, it's, it's uh, very, very interesting topics. Um, you've also mentioned that you have a, a new book that is that is out at the moment. Um, you'd like to just tell us about that, plug it quickly for the podcast? <laughs> yeah, I might as well. Um, <laughs> well, basically my book... Um, it's called Bombardment, Public Safety and Resilience in English Coastal Communities During the First World War. A very snappy title, <laughs> I'm sure you'll agree. But a very typical academic book type, type title in some ways. And it's basically the stuff I've been saying to you about my mm. PhD thesis. That's basically what the book is. Um, so I added some more stuff. I tried to make it a bit more appealing to a, bro- to a slightly more broader audience, although it is academic. Um, so basically all my stuff about the Northeast Coast and bombardment, that's what my book's about. Um, that came out with Palgrave Macmillan in 2021. So quite a while ago now, but it yeah. came out just before Christmas 2021. Nice. So it doesn't feel like it's been that long. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, great, yeah, I think that's um, I think that's all we've got time for today. But uh, yeah, there's a really interesting discussion. 
And and yeah, thank you very much, uh, Michael, for coming on. Um, I look forward to seeing you at the conference this year and and yeah, to staying abreast of what you've got going on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm yeah, looking forward to, to seeing you both in the summer as well. Uh, we've just got a final bit of um, housekeeping for the for the conference again. Uh, the call for papers closes on the on May the 1st, which I will say at the time of recording is next week, but obviously you will not be listening to it right now. So May 1st is the, the deadline for the call for papers with uh, admissions opening up in the following weeks. Uh, and yeah, we, we look forward to seeing as many of you there as we can on June the 16th and 17th at Leeds City Museum. Um, thank you all for listening and uh, see you on the next one.